Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. When you face such a unique challenge such as the pandemic and the social unrest, if you have the ability to just hold on, this is also an opportunity to really reevaluate and reset your business and say, what can I do better? Because you typically don't get those types of chances while you're running your business. That's Mark Cuban. He's the owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks and one of America's highest profile entrepreneurs. He believes the key to America's future prosperity may lie in its embrace of a new infrastructure with special emphasis on robotics and artificial intelligence. He spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken on Thursday, June 25th. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Entrepreneurs in America, those that started small businesses just like you did many years ago. Out of more than 15 million of these micro businesses in America, we've lost more than 3 million of them over the past few months. What is your message for the entrepreneurs of America? Should they try to rebuild the businesses that they had before? Should they try to focus in different areas? What would be your advice? Agility. Every small business goes through that pain factor, that uncertainty factor at some point in their life cycle. And when you face such a unique challenge such as the pandemic and the social unrest, that is going to halt a lot of businesses, but at the same time, it's going to create opportunities. And so if you have the ability to just hold on, this is also an opportunity to really reevaluate and reset your business and say, what can I do better? Now that we're going through all these changes, how can I reinvent this company for a, a new world, for a new type of customer, you know, a new opportunity? Because you typically don't get those types of chances while you're running your business. What's happened here with COVID and other challenges has not hit every industry or every business equally. Correct. So those companies in bioscience have done well and expanded. Those in the food delivery or distribution of food business have done well. Uh, and so we've seen that some businesses have been dramatically hurt. And we would expect whether you're hotels, airlines, cruise lines, restaurants, etc. What are the areas of the future that you're looking at as to growth? You know, that, that's a great question. If you have a vision for what America 2.0 post-reset should look like, there will never be a better time to create a business that goes into an entirely new direction something that hadn't been thought of before, something that's completely disruptive because the biggest players in the country, in the world, the medium sized and even the small businesses have challenges just trying to stay alive or trying to, you know, determine what their businesses are going to look like. So if you have a vision for something dramatically different, now's the time to do it. That's part one. Part two, if I was Mark Cuban, the college graduate, high school kid, you know, 20 something and I just lost my job, but I had an entrepreneurial bent. I'd look at ambient voice. If you've used Amazon Alexa or Google Home or Microsoft Cortana as, an, as an examples, they've become very prevalent, if not ubiquitous in a lot of homes, yet very few people understand how they actually work. If I was young and looking for something new, I'd become an expert in scripting in those language in, in those products. It's actually not much more difficult than writing HTML code or JavaScript. And so with that, being able to go to businesses who are looking for ways to go as touchless as possible, and by definition, ambient voice is touchless, 
you'll be able to work with them and charge them and create a business around supporting businesses um, using ambient voice. It can be simple things like elevators. It could be simple things like commands when you walk into a conference room. It could be more complex things like purchase order listings, um, product listings. Applications effectively are only limited by your time and imagination. When we step back and look at what was the world like in 2019, at that point in time, only 26% of people in America thought their life was going to be better than their parents. And 50% of young people were thinking maybe socialism or even communism would be a better system. So we can just imagine the challenges today that they're facing. What are some of the things they could do? Is there a potential for upskilling during this period of time, internships, mentorship? What would you be doing and advising some of the people that lost their internships or job? The first question you're going to get asked when you go to apply for a job, whether it's now or some point in the future, is what did you learn? What did you do? What skills did you add during the pandemic of 2020? And I think it's imperative to anybody looking to to get a job, to really push themselves forward, to do better than their parents, to really place a focus on learning. One of the greatest skills that we all can have in the, in the business world is a thirst for knowledge, just being excited about learning and knowing how to learn. And this really is the best opportunity ever for people to add to their skills, whether it's taking a Coursera class or, you know, in the past I would have said reading a lot of books, but now having learned from my kids, going on YouTube and watching tutorials and watching videos on various subjects. I learned how to write a, a three-layer JavaScript neural network on YouTube. And so there's a unique opportunity now for you to add skills, particularly in areas like artificial intelligence that are going to be in great demand that most people have not yet learned because it's so recent that it's become really applicable. So that's first and foremost. And then second, don't stop looking for a job now. If you grind it out and you continue to be persistent, whether it's emailing, calling, setting up on seminars, whatever it may be, however you can connect with people, applying for jobs, wherever, however, do it. Every no gets you closer to a yes. And all it takes is that one opportunity to propel you to where you look to be. When I came out of college way back when was the last time that unemployment was in double digits. The unemployment rate in Northern Indiana was 20%. My friends were freaked out like kids are today. And I had to be mobile, right? I had to go from Indiana back to Pittsburgh, my home, down to Dallas in order to really get to a job that, that I could platform. And so as you look for these things, you really have to be more adventurous, if, if you will, and be more mobile and be more flexible and agile. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You don't have to get the best job. You don't have to get a perfect job. You just have to get a job and now all of a sudden you're getting paid to learn and you can platform that just like an MBA free agent, right? They might spend one year or two years at one team, build their skill set to get better and go to a better situation. Looking and finding a job, looking and finding an internship, looking and building your skill set to prepare yourself for what comes next. There's no better opportunity than now. So Mark, as you know, we've announced again an infrastructure effort. Let's go spend trillion dollars on infrastructure. Japan spent about $4 trillion after the crisis at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, and really had nothing to show for it. So they built infrastructure, but it didn't create jobs. It didn't change things. Where should we spend this money and how should we spend it? 
we need to look for leverage points. I mean, historically, when we talked about infrastructure, we built highways between cities and that increased commerce. We built airports that allowed us to connect with the world and that increased commerce. We built shipping ports, et cetera. Those were great leverage points for the time, but now they're maintenance and they're not really leverageable. And I'm not saying don't do maintenance of bridges and roads and airports, but that shouldn't be the focus. If we truly wanted to become once again, a global manufacturing hub, rather than offshoring all of our manufacturing, we as a country need to invest in robotics and the AI that's associated with it and other opportunities. The United States is first in so many technologies, but we're not close to first when it comes to robotics. You've got Japan, Germany, Korea, and maybe we're tied with China, but China has so many more installations that they're moving quickly ahead of us. We do okay with software and robotics, but the physical manufacturing, we are way behind. And so we need to start investing there. And there are so many inflection points right around the corner for robotics, manual dexterity among the most important, so that if we can become the leaders and push forward through those inflection points, we can recapture and reshore a lot of the manufacturing. That's something one of my organizations is doing right now for an API for drugs that we want to bring back to manufacturing here. We're not going to look to recreate what was done in the past. We're looking to push forward. But it's very difficult for individual organizations, no matter what their size, to do it at a scale that's going to compete with other nations. And so when we talk infrastructure, I, I like to talk about infrastructure 2.0. And I think a real focus of that has to be robotics. Mark, I think there's a 100% chance after this experience this year that we will bring back manufacturing to the United States. And I think you've raised an important point here. Let's make sure we bring it back as it's going to be in the 21st century. Yeah, not wasn't yeah because otherwise we're just subsidizing it and, and trying to protect it via tariffs, which don't work. But I'm a big believer in American exceptionalism. I really, truly believe that we can be the best with anything related to technology. And, but we have to understand that the idea of manufacturing from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s is gone. That's no longer competitive. And, you know, one of the things I like to do, Mike, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, I always ask myself the question, how would I kick my own ass, right? For any of my businesses, what would I do to put myself out of business? And we have to do that as a sovereign nation as well. What is China thinking to get the rest of global manufacturing, to take away what uh, manufacturing the United States has or North America has? And they're investing in robotics and AI. Russia's trying to do the same thing, particularly via AI. Vladimir Putin said, whoever controls AI controls the world. And he's right. And so we have to recognize that we're not doing this in a vacuum, that other nations are investing to compete but we're not, and so we're falling further behind. So to your point, this is something that has to happen where things will get worse. We can't build a wall around ourselves for global commerce. About six years ago at the Milken Institute, we became concerned about how young people were feeling and whether they felt they had a chance at the American dream. It's personally dominated my life for the last 55 years thinking about this and the idea that every individual should have a chance to try and if fail, try again. And the American dream to me was equal opportunity, not based on where you're born, where you went to school, who your parents are, what your race or religion, your gender, but that you'd also have access to capital. 
What do you think the American dream is? And why do you think so many people believe that they don't have access to it today? I still believe in the American dream. One of my compatriots on Shark Tank, Damon John, always talks about the power of broke. The fact that he was broke is what propelled him forward to be able to start a business. And I've experienced the same thing. The American dream has become segmented into different types of challenges now. There's no singular approach to business any longer. There's no singular approach to education any longer. You know, everybody has got their own experiences and their own backgrounds. And that's what we have to start to recognize if we want to revitalize the American dream for everybody. We have to start to realize that kids growing up in the inner cities don't don't have the same opportunities and we have to invest there. And when we talk about inner cities in particular, we tend to think New York and LA and our big cities and forget about the small to medium sized cities and the need for us to invest in education and opportunity there as well. And then I'll add one more thing and maybe the most important thing. I think one area we fall down that I know I have in the past, we tend to think of ideas and businesses in terms of our own context, our own history, our own background. And we fail to realize that we're missing all those opportunities for communities that don't look like us. I've learned a lot with the Mavericks in terms of selling to different communities. In Dallas, we have the sixth largest Indian community in the country. And we didn't have anybody from the Indian community selling to the Indian community. And you could say the same thing about every ethnic community and every race. And so I think we need to start looking for opportunities of people from communities selling into those communities. And why that's particularly important is because those aren't high cost opportunities at all. Some people would call them side hustles that can grow into something special. And so we need to start finding kids of all ethnicities, all races and communities we typically don't touch and find ways to enable them and then find ways to give them the education they need to start running businesses. Not only do they not have the mentors, but they don't really have the access to the the specific languages of businesses that they need, finance, marketing, sales, et cetera. And by going out there investing in these companies and in people in their communities, we can do so much more. So Mark, you've given me a chance to read a lot of material here. (laughs) Hundreds of pages. Sorry. On an area that is so important and that is health. As we know, a very large percent of America cannot afford a four to $500 emergency. Yep. And whereas America has the highest percentage of people worth more than a million dollars along with Australia, of all developed countries, it also has the highest percentage of people with a net worth under 10,000. So the issue today, particularly brought to bear with the coronavirus, if I get the virus and I lose my job, what happens to my family? Can I pay the rent? Uh, what's going to ha- Who's going to feed my family? The issues that I'd like to touch base on really quickly are two, Mark. One, the sick bank that you've worked right. on. And the other, your 10 plan here. If you could quickly outline those, how do we make people feel more comfortable and more safe? We, we traditionally rely on insurance companies to pay for things that are outside our immediate affordability. From that perspective, starting with SickBank, a friend and I came up with the concept that said, look, 20 days of sick days from your employer is not gonna be enough if you get COVID. And people who get to that 21st day, they have to quit, they lose their jobs, whatever, they can't go to work, particularly if it's a smaller company. 
And so the concept of sick bank is that we work with employers and employees and we say to the employer, if you'll pay and the employee will donate one day, one day of their sick time to sick bank, then we'll aggregate all those as a quote unquote, not a real bank, but aggregate all those sick days. And then we'll allow all the participants to withdraw up to an additional 20 days. So if you have 20 days from your employer and you donate one day and you're just an average wage earner and that's $263, the employer pays the $263 in. Now you have 19 days of sick days available to you. But if you need them after a 30 day um, preparation period, you take them from the sick bank and sick bank will pay you for those days. And across all the country that accomplishes two things. One, it's peace of mind for employees that in the event that they get sick, instead of whatever the number of days they have from their employer, they now have that plus 20. And two, not only is it a, a, an attractive tool for employers, but it also gives them the opportunity if they weren't able to afford 20 sick days, they can roll it back to 15 days or 10 days, whatever they think is more economic for them. So they have an economic incentive to participate in sick bank as well. So you extend the number of sick days and the, the, the payments that are available for your sick days significantly, and you reduce the cost to the employer. And across the entire population of employees, we think that it could have just a dramatic impact on just the sanity of this country. Mark, one of the things that struck me when you first started talking about this is America is the most generous country in the world. Gave away about $400 billion in dollars last year. So 2% of the GDP, which is higher than other countries. But that pales in comparison to people giving of their time, mentorships, internships, etc. And what really struck me was everyone who is healthy, and this is not an issue for them or their company, this gives them a chance to give. Many years ago, when uh, Charity Water began with the idea, give up your birthday and tell everyone, yep. any gifts you would have given me for my birthday, give them and we can drill a well in Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. And, and so what really struck me was the desire of helping others with the idea you could give up one of your sick days. And yeah, it's a great point. I mean, for the one day that you give up, you can make a difference in somebody's life up to 20 days, you know, and really give them the confidence that if they get sick or somebody in their family gets sick or somebody in their company gets sick, that you're going to allow them to get taken care of because we already know that they don't have the money to your point to just continue to pay. We already know the healthcare system isn't you know, the way it should be. And we can talk about that in a minute. So this is a way to give and it's so simple and so easy from both the employer and the employee side. And the impact is significant. The leverage again is just incredible. So let's talk a little bit more about healthcare. And obviously this is a really important issue. Uh, among the major causes of bankruptcy or economic uncertainty in America, is healthcare costs? Many people are not covered. What are your thoughts about a new structure on healthcare? Sure. You know, in 2017, when the Republicans were looking at replacing uh, the ACA without um, a replacement program, I said, okay, what would I do? And the first thing I did was look at my own companies and we self-insure. And very quickly it became obvious that 95% of companies with 5,000 or more employees self-insure. 
And I asked a very simple question. What if the United States of America, the government, self-insured? And I started putting together math and I started putting together a basic outline which said that if you make 250% of the poverty level or less, you'd pay nothing but a copay. If you make above 250% up to some high level that we set, um, and we, we reset the models for anywhere from 800000 to $1.5 million, you'd pay anywhere from 1% of your income to 10% of your income um, for all your health care, but with two key defining elements. Number one, you don't begin to pay into the system until you use the system. Because with the United States government acting as the insurer, we don't have to create a pool of capital like a traditional insurance company does. So that's part one. So particularly if you're young and healthy, you're going to save a lot of money and we're going to be able to cover a lot more people. Part two, if you have a very costly health event or series of health events, whatever your costs are, you'll still only pay up to your means tested percentage of income. But after 15 years, if you have an outstanding balance still, we'll wipe that off. And so that's part two. Now, big picture, we set it up so that employees would stay on their employer's insurance, Medicare would stay on Medicare, Medicaid um, users would stay on Medicaid. This would, be, this would be available to all those eligible for the ACA, which at the time was 46 million, now could be as high as 60 or 70 million. But using the 46 million as a reference, when we did the math in that report and we modeled it, consumers saved $63 billion a year we covered all 46 million eligible people immediately. They're immediately eligible, no signups, no nothing. And on top of that, the actual cost to the government was effectively break even. So versus covering the 12, billion, the 12 million people under the ACA, the cost would be the same to cover 46 million people. That's the 10 plan. And I presented it to the Biden campaign and, and to the Trump campaign. So we'll see what happens from there. Well, you also presented it to the Milken Institute, uh, which is bipartisan. So thank you on that one. Mark, in closing, I want to go to sports. Okay. I really want to start with sports from a different standpoint. One of the podcasts we did that's up on the Milken Institute site was with Rob Manford, Commissioner of Baseball. And the point was sports is a lot more than a game. For many people, it's one of the few positive things in their life. Yep. For senior citizens, it makes up a big part of their entertainment, that team that they were rooting for. And as you know, it's a positive thing and something that they want to belong to. Yep. So w- when is the NBA coming back? But two, how do you view your fan base and how do you view your relationship? Not necessarily just with your players or the people working the team, right? but how do you view it with the community? So first we'll go backwards so july 30th is hopefully hopefully when we play our first game with safety considerations first in terms of the the community i learned early on that i didn't own the dallas mavericks all mavs fans everywhere around the world own the dallas mavericks and when i first bought the team everybody said we were in the business of basketball i talked to the commissioner david stern back then other owners yeah we're in the business of basketball and within three weeks i realized no we're not we're in the business of experiences and emotions If you think to the games that you've gone to, you don't remember the scores, the touchdowns, the dunks, the home runs. You remember who you were with. You remember, was it your brother, your sister, your dad, your mom? You remember the first game you went to with your parents or your 
your, your girlfriend or your wife. And so it, it creates these special moments and we grow up rooting for specific teams. So it also becomes a family bond. And so all these things together creates this just strong emotional attachment that we're missing right now. And it becomes so important. And so once I learned that, I realized that what we did off the court was easily as important, if not more important than what we did on the court. So Mark, um, I've been, I've been a little worried here because you might've been the most emotional owner. And now that I see Steve Ballmer at every game right yeah, there. He's trying, but you know, give him a few years. We'll see if he keeps it up. I've kept it up for 20 years. The teams and your interaction with the other owners, as I've interacted with maybe 200 CEOs and the events in Minneapolis and the issues of Black Lives Matter, one of the reactions that I had mentioned to you was many of these CEOs who had felt they had been extremely focused on inclusion, equal opportunity, are, as you would point out, on a reset today. What are they going to do different? In sports, you have an enormous opportunity to communicate. What have the Dallas Mavericks done over the past few months to communicate to your fans any differently than you did before? I mean, we, we have programs, we have something we call courageous communications where we brought people in to have discussions. You know, it, it really comes down to recognizing that this is a unique inflection point for race relationships as well. And to the points we mentioned earlier, we have a place in the community to have these conversations. And what we've tried to do is listen to our players and really, I wish I had picked it up sooner and took me too long to really recognize the, the challenges, particularly that African-American men go through just trying to grow up and just trying to live their lives normally. And that's really led me to understand that this is an opportunity for me, for other sports owners, particularly since we're almost exclusively white, 95 or 98% white, for us to really have tough conversations, not with the black community, but with the white community. You know, it's very, very difficult for a white CEO or a white person period to talk about race. African-Americans have no problem sitting at the dinner table talking about race. It's normal. But you, we'll never sit around a bunch of white people say, well, let's talk about the white race. Let's talk about racism from white people. Let's talk about white privilege, you know, because it's very, very difficult for us to do. The minute we hear the term white privilege, we, we get defensive and we start manufacturing equivalency. I, it's not me because I did A, B, or C. I can't be privileged because my ancestors, my grandparents, my dad, me have gone through these challenges. That's not what any of this is about, but it's difficult to have those conversations. And that's what we've tried to do. That's where I've tried to use my platform. And that's where I encourage all CEOs to use their platform, to have white people talk to white people. Look, that's, what, that's where the racism is coming from. It wasn't black people that, that institutionalized racism. It was white people. And that's hard to talk about. That's uncomfortable to talk about. And you, we just have to realize that progress is not pretty, that we have to have these conversations because they're difficult, because that's the only way white people are going to change. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us today. And we will look to see how you do in Orlando thank when you. you go there and bring 
sports back to so many people in their lives. To all of you out there that want to follow up with any of this form with me, my email is mcuban at gmail. Keep it short and I'll try to get through all of them and hopefully we can all make things a little bit better. And thanks for having me on, Mike. Well, Mark, maybe we'll send a million entrepreneurs your way. I hope so. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.